0: R.A. Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of this show. Today, I'm excited to welcome Eris Drew onto the podcast, a vinyl veteran who needs little introduction. Drew tours extensively as a vinyl-only DJ, sometimes with her partner, Octo-Octa. Together, they live in upstate New York and run the t for t Love Energy label, a purveyor of high-quality house, disco, trance, breaks, and everything in between. Drew is originally from Chicago and describes herself as a quote-unquote, ecstatic. She's written and spoken extensively about the dance floor's healing potential, especially when combined with psychedelics and shamanism. And she's an outspoken advocate of trans, queer, and non-binary people everywhere. In this conversation, Drew takes a pause from discussing the dance floor and speaks more directly to her approach to her dual crafts as a DJ and a producer. At the time of recording, she was about to play her third live set ever, a venture she's taken on over the last few months. Drew talks to Ari's music editor, Andrew Rice, live from UTech Montreal, about why she wanted to do a live set to begin with. Before DJing, she was in an industrial band in the early 90s, and she's been aching to embark on that kind of performance practice again.
1: Um, We banged on sheet metal and played synthesizers and screamed into microphones (laughs) Um, and played with punk bands that thought we were ridiculous. But these were like really wonderful experiences. I've always wanted to do that kind of
0: performance again. She also reflects on how her style of DJing is extremely similar to playing live. Drew, like Octo-Octa, is vinyl only, and she layers a cappellas, whistles, and samples on the fly during all of her sets. She said that a lot of this comes from always wanting to challenge herself and to learn new techniques. Interestingly, she also acknowledges that DJing vinyl today can sometimes feel out of place and that she considers herself a 20th century artist. There's a poetry to this anachronism, though, and she likes to play with putting artifacts, sounds, and messages from the past in conversation with an audience in the present. Drew had the unfortunate experience of succumbing to hearing problems last year and has since started wearing custom ear protection. She spends a good deal of this episode talking about recovering from the stress that accompanied her hearing difficulties, as well as outlining some of the ways that we can all take better care of our hearing, as DJs and as regulars on the dance floor and in nightlife spaces. Aerostru has been a regular on R.A.'s Pages, so it's a pleasure to welcome her back to the Exchange. Thanks for tuning in, and without further ado, here is the ecstatic DJ and producer herself.
2: Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your first time at Mutech. You're DJing tonight and playing live tomorrow, and it's your third ever live set, right? Yes. So as someone who's known as a very like accomplished and special kind of DJ, like with records, what made you want to do a live set to begin with?
1: Well, you know, my first experiences performing music were actually playing live. So in the suburbs of Chicago, where I grew up, that's where I had my first band. We were like an industrial band. This was like the early 90s. Um, we banged on sheet metal and played synthesizers and screamed into microphones. <laughs> Um, and played with punk bands that thought we were ridiculous. But it, these were like really wonderful experiences. I I've always wanted to do that kind of performance again. And when I was like transitioning in around 2015, I had a little act I was touring. It was just me and my synthesizers and uh, a sequencer. And I would sing and do these shows. And I really enjoyed that. So during the same time as when I started getting recognized internationally for my DJing and so that sort of took center stage. So in the back of my mind it's always been this idea at some point I would get back to doing these live shows. And interestingly my my first two records that I think people are familiar with, you know Transcendental Access Point and then the Naive record I did with Maya, you know Hold Me and these songs, like they were starting to be written as I was doing these last live sets. So I kind of came up with the process doing those sets. And once I completed my, my first album, Quivering in Time during the pandemic, I thought it would just be a really exciting and cool way to engage with my music practice again after that like 18 month period. So I, I, I kind of put out there to the world that I wanted to do this again. Uh, what kind of setup do you use? The setup is a turntable, a DJ mixer but not another turntable. An MPC, so an MPCX, An electrics filter factory that I can route different things to. Then just like a traditional like, keyboard, which is sending MIDI to various instruments. I have a Mellotron. I'm not an actual unit that's made by the company that made the old 60s Mellotrons, made in Sweden. This is a rack mount, so it's all digital um, recordings of the original Mellotron tapes. I should probably explain what a Mellotron is. This was like the first kind of sampler instrument. So in the 1950s there was like music concrete which was using tape, you know, manipulating tape to create music and musical sounds. And so someone decided, well we can put for every key of of like, I think it's like an octave and a half or two octaves or something, we will have a tape running. And so the sound bank is loading this giant thing of tapes into this machine and then you, when you press the key button it plays the tape. Each like set of patches was created by a flute player playing C and then playing D and then playing E. And so the Beatles and other bands like this used this and uh, I, I got infatuated with this machine. Oh, gosh, around like 2005, started using plugins that emulated it and eventually got my own little piece of hardware. I, I like it because it brings a kind of texture and tone into dance music that you don't always hear. There is something that is a little bit almost old and kind of textural about it. So that's my ensemble machine. I'm, when you see me playing keyboards tomorrow, if you come to the show, that's what I'm playing. And A lot of my music's been written on that. And I also have a polyphonic synthesizer and a bunch of pedals.
2: (laughs) Does it feel different when you're playing your tracks live as opposed to DJing? Like, how how does the energy differ?
1: Oh, it does feel different. I mean, I kind of feel like those like old time musicians that would play with like the monkeys like playing the cymbal and the cats playing the accordion and they're, you know, they're play- where like every arm is doing something. Cause it's it's a lot of equipment and so it's a lot of coordination. And I have to be very, very uh, focused on what I'm what I'm doing so I don't miss my cues and things like that. Since I've been DJing for so long, and since there's something very second nature about this, the live set is challenging to me in a way that is is different, you know? So you know, I get quite nervous before these sets, but, <laughs> but that's good. You know, it I'm I'm means I'm excited and I'm engaged. I always want to challenge myself as a musician. And one of the reasons I love playing vinyl so much is that it's endlessly challenging and there's always new techniques to learn and techniques to unlearn
2: as well. What are some um, recent vinyl techniques that you've picked up then?
1: Oh, um, I mean, something that is, I'm constantly engaging with and finding new ways to, to do or to use... It's very traditional in-house music to use some kind of acapella or sound effect record. So I've heard stories where legendary DJs would like have a recording of a jet plane. DJs I knew in Chicago would sometimes use really important speeches and then incorporate that into their set. I don't want to say that I came up with this idea, I did not, but I'm engaged by that concept, like people have heard me DJ, probably heard me bring in the train, I call it, so this is where I manipulate field recordings of a of a locomotive train from uh, the 1960s. I use a race car race from the 1950s to create these like Kind of swirling panorama effects in uh, on really large systems and to create like musical sounds and emotions from things that we don't really think of as music. Turntable's really cool. I don't use a master pitch like you would on a, like so many people do on a CDJ. So when I speed up the sound, the pitch goes up. So I can actually tune the drone of like, you know the hum of the train, or the or the the f- what you call the tonic or the fundamental tone of the race car zipping by, to whatever I'm playing, using using the turntable. So finding new ways to do that's cool. I mean that one of the traditional ways to play an acapella as a, a dance artist is to just take the acapella beat match it to what you're playing. What I've been trying to do lately is to actually take that acapella and then you know play one phrase, and then skip forward to another phrase, and then play that phrase, and then scratch that phrase, and then come back and repeat that phrase. Like, I now carry an entire bag of these collage records, and then my other bigger bag is, is like, dance tracks, you know? So, so, yeah, I would say, like, probably a lot of my time spent challenging myself is trying to figure out kind of novel ways to do that. I have a Janis Joplin acapella right now that is just kind of blowing my mind. I can't plan for these things. Like, I'm actually engaging with these um, recordings in real time. And it's kind of cool. Like, sometimes something that didn't seem as meaningful in the acapella, something will change in my life, or the context changes. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait. Wait a second. I'm going to play that part of the cappella tonight, because that's resonating with me. So I would say that's that's a recent recent thing.
2: Are the, the words and the vocal tracks you play important to you?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's not incidental. You know, like an artist like MK would take just like the vowels or like the sounds of language and reorganize it in a way that we're just enjoying, like the sound poem. But I also love lyrics and poetry, and I love the idea of being able to take something from its original context and putting it in a new frame. I mean, I don't think people are actually know that it's Janis Joplin that I'm using, unless they're really into Janice or something. I do have some friends who have said, "Oh, oh I know what, I know what you're doing." <laughs> but um if you f- can find something that's that's meaningful, I find that really engaging, and it's interesting to find records that you're playing that maybe have a phrase that can really complement you know this the poetry or like i one of my favorites is a record by this punk rock band Crucifix, do you know them? And the singer Safira Feng, and I might be mispronouncing his name, well, he's very political, and like, he's got this one track that begins with an acapella, and then the band kicks him. Well, I just used the beginning, and he says, reject the system that dictates the norms, from dehumanization to arms production, you know, all these really cool lyrics. I'm a trans woman, you know, so I hear that reject the system, I hear reject the cis, reject the cis, reject the cis, reject the cis, reject the system. Okay. So you can create your own, you know, just by like cutting off a phrase or you can change the actual words or the, the meanings. So that's one when it, it happened kind of accidentally and then I was like, oh my God, this is like a trans narrative buried in this song that I can bring out, even though that certainly wasn't the intention of the you know the artist who wrote it in 1980 or whatever
2: so, so you're talking about fairly like in-depth techniques with the turntables because you said before when you do a live set you have to you feel like you have to be more like paying more attention, but I mean, it's not like you're playing a record and letting it play and just, you know, doing nothing. Yeah, And I do think that a lot of DJs become complacent over time, and they don't think about it. But you are always trying new things, and I, I wonder though, like, as someone who is always interested in trying new techniques and new ways to play music, why do you stick to vinyl? Which is, you know, devil's advocate is a very outdated and inconvenient technology.
1: Well, you know, I think I think every artist has to deal with this strange liminal space of where you want to make sure you're trying new things, but but also a certain degree of limitation is really good. Like why are guitar players so amazing at playing guitar? It's because they have got, you know, six strings and a couple of pedals, and they're going to spend 20 years figuring out how to draw something really special out of that instrument that no one else has ever done. And so that you end up becoming virtuistic in something if you really focus on getting every last drop you can out of it. Your individuality actually tends to emerge from this process of interaction over time. So I'm still at this place where I feel like the records, I haven't reached any kind of plateau with it. You know, working with my partner, Okta Okta, we're always trying to kind of challenge each other, impress each other, and so I always actually have someone also there to like, get excited, because I mean, to be honest, when you're on a stage and you do like a really cool thing with the turntable, people feel it, but they don't always know it, if that makes sense, so, but she knows it, you know, she's back there watching every little move, we pat each other on the side when, when something kind of cool, like, come on, keep, keep doing that, you know, <laughs> and then, and eggs each other on, so also having someone to share that with helps it to be endlessly engaging, but I kind of can't imagine reaching this summit. I kind of think there's infinite possibilities. Something I've enjoyed with the live set is I freed myself a little bit from that because my songs are basically collages of various turntable things, little beats, reverses, sounds I make on turntables with kind of traditional keyboard playing. Like I don't use like groove boxes and things like that typically in my productions. So when it came time to think about how do I do this live, I was like, how do I create live, a live music out of this thing which is like kind of this collo- like a this solitary collage, you know? So I thought, well, okay, so many turntablists, like people who do scratching as their primary thing, they're using Serato now because they can have all their sound sources loaded up and they can focus, you know, just on hitting their scratches and doing as much creative stuff as they can, so because my live set involves me probably manipulating upwards of 40, 50 scratches, I had to be real with myself. I said, your live set can either be about you collaging scratches over pre-recorded music, or you can find a way to do this somewhat more efficiently. And so I I got a Serato license and started experimenting with loading some interesting sounds in there and then also sampling my own records, so going back and deconstructing the tracks I'd written a couple years ago. So, you know, I might be playing a keyboard part during the live set and then I turn to the side and then, you know, manipulate a scratch. But I don't have to spend the, the two minutes getting that cue ready, which, you know, You know, when we're mixing, You know, Maya and I do long blends and we like to let the tracks play and then we're doing these orchestrations. But I can only do like maybe one or two orchestrations in a single track because of the time limitation. But um, by using Serato in the live set, I kind of free
2: myself from that. What do you mean by orchestration?
1: Well, orchestration is kind of the act of taking a sort of musical idea that's already developed Right? So, in the traditional sense, you know, you have a set of chords and you have a melody, like you maybe have written something on piano and now you're going to have an orchestra play it. So, orchestration is deciding how many um, instruments play, you know, are going to play the tonic and how many instruments are going to play a certain harmonic and which ones. Well, what we do is we take a record that's been produced sometimes, you know, yesterday, sometimes 30 years ago, and then We take these other sounds or vocals, um, you know, the train or the, the car whizzing by or the punk rock vocal. It's not just like a layer, it's like a way of emphasizing certain aspects of the recording that already exists. So for example, like a simple one would be to drop a scratch right before a breakdown in a record. This would be like a traditional orchestration technique of creating an accent immediately before a dramatic moment when things are gonna get like soft or quiet. It's such an interplay of dynamics and adding content that I view it like an orchestration.
2: And so do you have uh, certain records that you would like repeat a certain orchestration with every time you play them? Yes.
1: Yeah. It doesn't usually start that way, but things will end up that way. Like I have this one Kama Sutra record, which has got, It's. I mean it's basically what um, well, Laurie Spiegel once famously said, every American musician has to have a, their train song. So this is a train song. It's a song where the rhythms and everything in the song feels like a train chugging by. So when I started putting the actual whistles over, the, over this recording, it just became something I just would get very excited to do, and I could feel people's reaction. And then at shows, people would start, to, they'd hear the song and start to do the whistle. It's like, what? Like, and I'm like, okay, I've got to do it, you know? <laughs> so so this is a song I play, I would say, almost every set, because, and every time I do the whistles, it's different, and I try different effects, and uncanny things happen. Sometimes it, like, doesn't work out, and that's okay, too, you know? <laughs> so yeah, but it's not all, like, pre-thought of things. So every set would involve just some experimentation, and it really does help, especially when you're playing out of a tour bag and playing records that you've loved for ages. It's like sampling on the fly. It's like really fun to try new things. I would never wanna just
2: sort of always do it the same or something. It kinda sounds like the way you approach it, playing vinyl is almost like a live set in itself. Well,
1: you know, when we're trying to get people to give us sound checks and things like that, we always say, look, it's a little bit more like a band. Like we need a stable setup. We need to be able to monitor really clearly. We need no feedback. We need to be able to move without skipping a record. Um, you know, and these are just not really things you have to worry about so much with certain other formats. You know, digitally, um, you don't need to worry about bumping your CDJ with your um, knee, typically, you know. So, yeah, I, th- I would say there is an aspect of it that feels, feels a little bit more like that.
0: Yeah.
2: So, for, especially when you're DJing together, you move around a lot, you're doing techniques, you're dancing. What, so, what does the sound check entail? Compared to like a regular DJ soundtrack.
1: Um, well, so the first thing we do is we get there, like hopefully in advance some things have been discussed, you know. What, what's the, Your first concern is always the substrate you're on. So what I mean by that is, am I set up on the concrete or am I set up on a hollow stage? Like I, I know this, not everyone that's listening to this is going to listen. be in the room with us. So uh, Andrew and I are right now sitting on a hollow stage and then underneath that is concrete. If we get there and we're set up on the concrete, we're probably not gonna have any problems with feedback or with skips. But if we're set up up here on this hollow stage, see that? Well, guess what 99% of festivals have right now. (laughs) So it's a challenge. So the first thing we do is, in this case, we would try to set up the decks on this platform and stand on this one. So the first thing you do is you make sure you got a good table and you got a good substrate. And if you don't, then you start doing things to make the situation better. And it's typically concrete. You want to weigh down the table as much so that as everything's vibrating under it, it's a little bit more stable. So when I did my sound check this morning, for example, they had two slabs of concrete to go into the turntables. It was not enough. I wasn't destabilizing the decks with my movements but there was a lot of feedback coming through the monitors and through the main system. Something that not everybody that's on a dance floor at a festival would know is that when you stare at a speaker, you're gonna get the sound projecting at you. A sub projects it in all directions. There are ways to deal with that, like setups that cancel out those frequencies, but basically when you're on a hollow stage, there's a lot coming back at you, typically. So weight really helps. The next thing we have to do is make sure that the turntables are properly calibrated. Um, Most of the decks that we are using are 20 plus years old. And we do a very old technique for mixing. It's called riding the pitch or pitch mixing. This is something I learned in Chicago from my friend, Justin Allis Long. But I saw many other DJs do it, so it's not his technique. It's a technique that many DJs aspired to learn. And it's basically, you drop the needle on the record, you get it queued up, so you touch the record to cue it up, you release it, and then you don't touch the record again through the blend. And you may do a 30-second a blend or a four-minute blend, and the entire time you're making microscopic movements to that pitch fader. So if it's at, you know, you put it in at 2%, you're going to 2.2%, 2.1%. You know, you're just, and you listen. You don't take your ear out of the headphones, so you're listening constantly. So if the turntable pitch has gone out of calibration, that movement then becomes unpredictable. It'd be like kind of like playing a guitar with really loose strings, you know, and then have, have, finding it difficult because it's not what you're—the haptic that you're expecting is not there. A lot of people don't know when it says two, four, six, and eight on the deck or whatever, it's like that means 2%, that means 4%. So it should be calibrated to that. So we check the calibration. If it's off a little, that's fine. But if it's off a lot, that's a problem. We also have to check to make sure that there's not other things wrong with that mechanism. We bring our own needles, um, which is something I recommend for anyone serious about playing vinyls. We have to make sure the needles are clean, sometimes between gigs they become dirty, so sometimes at the sound check we're cleaning the needles. I have to check to make sure the mixer is isolated from the decks, because a lot of people like to push the CDJ right next to the mixer, which is fine, but if you do that with a turntable, it's going to generate a feedback loop. Also, if you like to crossfade and do other things, it's going to bounce the needle off the turntable because your mixer is hitting the turntable. This is just the beginning of the list. I don't know how long you want me to talk about it, but we make sure there's a place for our records. We both wear hearing protection because I have tinnitus and I have injured my ears, and I want to try to preserve my hearing as much as possible, so monitoring is a huge issue for us. And to do this pitch mixing technique, because you have nothing else, you don't have a visual, you don't have a BPM readout on the machine itself, you have to listen. And you're literally listening to like 64th notes or like even higher, because what you're hoping is that you hear that hi-hat kind of starting to slip off before everybody else does, and then you make your microscopic adjustment. And we call it riding the pitch, because it's its weird. It's like somehow your brain eventually clicks and you're just making these little movements like, I'm not thinking about it exactly, but that's what's happening. So if the monitors have any delay because of DSP or um, because of a network solution or just because of some bad wiring or something, you know, then we have a problem. So we have to check and make sure the um, the what's in our headphone and what's on the monitors is what we call one-to-one, meaning that, that as I'm listening in the headphone and listening in the monitor, there is absolutely no delay. It, there can be like tiny amounts, like a few milliseconds, but it's very, very minor. So if a DSP has like seven second, milliseconds of delay, like that's gonna be okay. But when we start you know, getting up into double-digit numbers, that's gonna be an issue.
2: Um, As someone who, you know, plays clubs all the time and with hearing damage and tinnitus, when you're doing a sound check, how do you make it work so that you can hear the music loud enough without hurting yourself more or causing yourself pain?
1: Well, you know, it took me a long time. It was my friend Jordan who convinced me, you know, Eris, what you need now is you need to wear really heavy earplugs. And then I thought, wait, that math makes sense. So I wear negative 26 dB reducing earplugs. Okay. Your goal is to be monitoring around 80, 82, that's still putting some wear and tear on your ears but generally speaking this is like OSHA safe level, like right at the max of it, right? So assuming that the sound system is projecting anywhere between 102 and 110, your monitoring needs to be at least like 2 dB above what you're hearing in the booth. So I can turn my monitors up between 105 and 110 and still be listening at a safe level. And it's so wild because you're like, you're in the 90s and you're like, oh, this feels loud and I can't hear anything and then it just pops over. And as long as you've got the really good hearing protection, really flat filters in there, these are custom you know, earplugs I wear, it's actually become easier for me to mix than in the old days when I would not wear hearing protection or when I wore negative 10 dB hearing protection. Because what I was doing is still playing in 105 dB environments, still needing to turn my monitors up that loud, but really only getting about 10 dB of protection, so I'm listening for three hours at 95 dB. That's dangerous. And it was for me, and it eventually caused me a problem. Ever since I started talking a little publicly about what happened to me, this was like almost a year ago, so many musicians have told me that they are dealing with the same thing and they're not sure how to handle it and they feel uncomfortable talking about it or acknowledging it. And so it's definitely an industry-wide issue, and the statistics are staggering. By some accounts, 70% of musicians over the age of 40 are dealing with tinnitus, or something called tinnitus distress, which is the psychological fear and frustration you feel when you've got a constant dentist drill in your ear, or whatever the sound is that you're dealing with. I thought last fall I was gonna have to quit playing music and it went even further. I thought I couldn't even listen to music anymore. I mean, the sound of Maya's voice was like painful for weeks and weeks and weeks. But um, I started cognitive behavioral therapy and got myself some really great hearing protection and then with the dB meter at home started reteaching myself how to monitor. And I will say, I actually think I'm a more accurate and getting to be a, a better DJ from it. So as hard as it's been, I guess if I could say one thing, as sort of like a public service announcement, is that you can DJ really well with really good earplugs in, and
2: don't be afraid to turn it up as long as your hearing protection is really good. Um, after you got over the like initial like distress period and using you know sort of therapy and trying to uh, mitigate it, did it change the relationship with music or what kind of music you liked or liked to play at all? Well, it was interesting. My definitely for a few months it did because anything with
1: any kind of like real intense harmonic distortion and like Maya and I love sampled drums and like those 90s kind of like just you know where tons of mid-range and like like just you know bongos and, and every you know hi-hats stacked on hi-hats and three different snare drums and all this. That became a little hard to listen to for a while. So if anyone's checked out the mix that Maya and I did for Fonica right around the new year, the music's a bit trancey almost because it's like we wanted to play things that were kind of easier on me in that sense, I went through a little time period where I was listening to a lot of just like very beautiful and soft music, jazz, and you know, just music that wasn't quite so maximal, I guess I would say. But I'm still listening to all this. Like, I still love the Pixies, you know, even though there's sounds in there that sound like my tinnitus, you know. And you know, I still love all the music I loved. But I did have this time period where I engaged with with softer sounds for a while, and that was actually kind of refreshing after touring so much
2: (laughs) so but you've gotten to a stage where you can like live with it now
1: yeah I mean I still have bad days to be honest you know even today it's ringing a little bit and I'm a little anxious about it I have what's called variable tinnitus so it kind of comes and goes it's hard to be in a quiet room to be honest so so there's always a little jazz on or a little something in the background even during quiet quiet moments
2: yeah, I, I had tinnitus since I was a kid, but I didn't really notice it until I was 18. And when I was like, I spent like a year of insomnia because they just, it drove me nuts. I, I took a while and i get kind of used to it.
1: Your ear goes on the pillow and then that's like all you can hear and it's like all you can think about, yeah. The insomnia is hard. I really struggled to sleep for like four or five months. It's only gotten better, maybe at the end of the winter.
2: Um, and so that obviously, this problem adds another layer to your sound check, which is obviously very involved. Um, And as someone who only DJs vinyl, tours with vinyl, do you find it's getting any easier or harder to get the setups right or play vinyl sets around the world?
1: You know, it is getting, I think it gets incrementally harder all the time
2: um, because fewer and fewer people do it.
1: Less and less kind of time and consideration goes into isolating systems a lot of newer clubs like in the old in the in the old days oh my goodness when i was growing up if you had a nightclub, you had to have at least a reasonable setup for turntables because that was just what 99 percent of people were using to play their sets but you know nowadays you can have a new club and really maybe two percent three percent of your players i mean it depends on where you are of course and who you're booking but a relatively low portion of your players is probably Playing vinyls, so then other considerations take hold. One of the things that's hard about a f- playing festivals, and you know, with festivals taking such a predominance in how people are listening to electronic music collectively, there they have to be very multi-purpose. I mean, every engineering choice is a trade-off. And so, in order to accommodate all different kinds of musicians and setups, and to be able to set up and tear down quick and make sure people can see the artists and this and that. You know, it's it's easy for like deck isolation to be quite lost in that process. So, typically, before we even accept to play somewhere, there's a quite a long discussion, and that continues up until the moments before the um, before we play. So, once I finished the sound check today, I wrote Dan Koya, our our tour production manager, who helps us deal with these situations before we arrive, so we can do proper sound checks and be able to play on hollow stages and have good monitoring and all that. And then um, the other professionals we work with are also a part of that process very very deeply. It's been kind of making my agent crazy for years. I, he, <laughs> I don't know if you'd want me to say that, but it's frustrating, you know, because he's he's trying to make sure that things are good. And it's not just so I have a good time, it's because I really want to deliver a truly, you know, a, hopefully an exceptional Um, set for people and you know something that like lifts the spirit and something that is has certain uh, certain abilities to build the heat in the body and if my records are skipping every two seconds that's kind of cool a few times can be a little act of chaos you know and everyone's like yeah cool you're playing vinyl but the truth is it will kill the vibe of a set after a while so yeah it is getting harder but we are determined to continue doing it And I'm really hoping over the next maybe year or two to try to like maybe talk to some other artists about um, trying to set some standards for this sort of thing so this practice can be preserved um, at at the types of events we play.
2: Um, So yeah, touring the way you do and playing the way you do, it's like commitment uh, causes much difficulty. Not not your fault, but there is difficulty. (laughs) You know, I, I find it interesting because I kind of associate your art with like an old school rooted ethos of like, creating, like, a better future, you know, trying to create the, the room around you, the space around you, and just, like, looking forward to better things in the future, which is very, like, old school electronic music. But the way you approach it, I feel like it's kind of, like, what some people would consider retro, because you're using, like, old school vinyl techniques. you only playing vinyl. So for you, with the setup that you DJ with, do you consider it like old school? Is it, is it futuristic to you? Because, you know, we're at a festival that focuses on like innovation and in live music, and I'm very curious as to, as to how you feel about it.
1: That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've thought of it in those terms. I mean, I guess retro in the word I would use, but I do feel like I'm a 20th century artist sometimes. We were playing Lowlands in the Netherlands. It's one of the biggest stages we ever played. It was Maya and I together, Okta and I together. 12,000 people are in front of us. We're in a, a warehouse that you could park two Boeing 747s in. I mean, it was huge, right? But the sound team was amazing, and they worked so hard to make sure that when we got on that stage, we could really play a great set. So we're up there, the music is just sounds incredible. And I thought to myself, all this depends on this little needle going over this vinyl and just writing what is like a mountain of sound. I mean, there's no sound. There's no sound. It's just these little grooves, these little... and the needles going over the thing. And it was, I thought, this is just so cool, you know? I guess, I guess it's sort of, what, cyberpunk in a sense. It's not really the word I'd attach to it, but there does something feel like something sort of future retro about it, you know? But, you know, the, everything else about the rig was extremely technologically current. Like, this is not a rig you could have set up in the 20th century. It was DSP'd and controlled with networks and people with their iPads out, dialing in the sound and all this, and very contemporary speaker designs. But, you know, at the heart of it was this little, this, this little tipped needle.
2: And so yeah, what keeps you coming back to the, to the wax and the needle? Because oh. like, you, you said like you're very determined to keep doing it.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's a, it's a few different factors. I mean, one, it's just like a romance, right? Like I fell in love and I don't wanna fall out of love with that, you know? I'm 47 years old and I feel like this is something special that I can present to people. And it's so connected with my youth and with the other artists I love and respect from that time, that doing it feels like some kind of continuation. It makes my artistic practice, adds meaning to it for me. I love the challenge of it. I really find that even though it's becoming harder to play records, that people's love for records hasn't diminished at all. I'm very grateful to the people who come to hear us and sometimes there is feedback or sometimes it is skipping and afterwards they'll tell us, oh, I don't care, that was great, you know, and I think, okay, cool. Like there's a value in this, even if other values are compromised, like even if maybe the sound wasn't as good during our set, you know, maybe it was a little bumpy along the way and I think, well, you know, that's the rock and roll of it, you know, so so even though it's hard, I feel like it's worth Doing and I feel really emotionally attached to it. And the you know the records themselves—it's like our scene has these like artifacts in a sense. I mean, when you play a record by someone like um, Wild Child or something like, they're not still with us anymore. But it was their creativity that was etched into those grooves. That's their identity disc in a sense. Something about it feels really connected to the past. And I think in this world that seems like it's careening into a really scary future, that's a good thing that that people want to do that. In a sense, it's almost like an an ancestral practice. And I don't mean my ancestors, I mean the ancestors, you know? Like like are the people that came before us.
2: Do you see your sets as kind of like a conversation between the present and the past then?
1: Well, I do in that sense, yeah. You know, because you know, I I bring up Wild Child because there were so many messages in his music, and so to see people responding to those messages—this is someone who died early in their life. They left behind a um, their child, their love, their wife. It does feel like an engagement in the past, from the past, to see people utterly having the the most. Intense musical moments of their life to his songs, to his etched grooves. Yeah.
2: Is it important to you to keep a hold of the past while, as like what you said, the world is careening out of control?
1: Well, I think so. You know, I mean, I don't, there's plenty from the past we want to reject. I don't want to um, mythologize the past, but I do think anything that takes us out of this sort of short view we have as humans that live really short lives, this is good, this helps our our perspective, helps us grow as people, helps us value things in ways, you know. I, I should say, my mom was an antique dealer, so I grew up around old things, and she was an atheist, but she would tell me that when she held the objects, she would feel the history and like the, the motion of time, and she would think to herself, how is it that I'm holding this? How did anyone ever let, let this go? Why isn't this still with a family? So for, she actually had like kind of a spirituality around that, and it always stuck with me. Like when my other, some of my other colleagues were deciding not to play records anymore, I still felt this like value in that. Like in a sense, so many of us are so scared about the future or so upset about the present, that we forget almost that we're alive and we are not going to be for very long. The world is fucked up, but like we still have these incredible tools and we still have music and we still have each other. We still have the subjective experiences of being together and dancing together. So there's some kind of metaphor in there with the records and what I'm actually trying to do on these dance floors.
2: Do you feel like you're making your own history with the records or like imbuing your own history onto them to be like an antique one day?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends, you know, if 10 years from now, people remember that I played this record or that record and what it meant to them, one of the Maya and I's favorite things to do is to read each other comments on Discogs and on YouTube of old records because people love to go on and say, I heard this at this place. And there's often histories of DJs you never hear talked about reflected in these comments. And there'll be some record that you could say to your old school friend, hey, you know, this is a record I found from 1996. And they'll say, I never heard that. Or, oh, what's, you know, I don't know, what is that? A really great example is um, this Kenny Larkin remix of an inner city song. Um, oh my gosh, what is the name is escaping me. It's a purple record. Well, at any rate, my understanding is this was not considered a cool record in Europe, for example, but in Chicago, this was one of the most favorite records of ravers during this critical time period of 1994 to 1995. So it's cool to hear the localized stories of records that meant something because a DJ, a DJ, or a little group of DJs, had decided that this was a great record. And for some reason because of their style or because of that locality or where it was or who the people were, it becomes part of the mythology of that place and people never forget it, so yeah.
2: I'm conscious of time, so I want to see if anyone has any questions because um, we could keep talking, but I want to be able to involve the audience. Anyone have a question over there? Um, thank you so much, Ares. Uh First, the two questions. First little question, what set times are you playing today, later?
1: Oh my goodness. 9.50 is my technical call okay. time. Well, 10 to 11, so. okay, perfect. I think there's a little changeover, so. Okay, cool. Um,
2: I'm curious about the physicality of like records in terms of you traveling having to pack them, and you're experimenting with your records. So how do you organize yourself and don't get bogged down and like the volume, like do you have like a huge library at home, and then you select certain things? Are you ever like out of set, and you're like, I forgot to pack this one? And could you even put like a number on that in terms of like how many records you bring around? And then the second part of the question is, do you like hear modern sounds that are not part of records, and like see if you can find a record that has that sound, or do you ever get like MP3s transcribed onto records to play them, or do you just stick to old? Um,
1: oh, you know, yeah, I've never, like, done a dub plate of, like, field recording that I did or, like, pulled a sound like that, like, like, yeah, made my own, like, a scratch record, although Maya and I have talked about doing it, so that might be coming. Okay, so as far as your first question is concerned, there is a number, because we, we always bring, like, one big rolly bag and then one, like, smaller magna, like, shoulder bag. Magnet bag is usually the scratch records, acapellas, field recordings, various things I'm using for collage, and, you know, the Meepy Manifesto record, a crucifix record, whatever it is. And then the bigger bag is like the, the records that I'm going to play, like the, the dance tracks. That total is somewhere around 70 to 80, depending on how hard I want to pack it, sometimes 60. We always bring a second bag, so as we're buying records, because that's one of the most beautiful things about playing records, is that as you're traveling places, you can, you know, find, you know, find them and pick them up. So, we, so that way we don't always have to ship them home or whatever, because, of course, there's, like, weight limitations, and we're always sneaking the, sneaking the rolly bag on. It's because it's overweight, but I'm not checking that thing no way in hell. Over my dead body, I say sometimes. Before I started touring, you know, I would pull a crate together for a set. Like, this was, like, really typical. And sort of start from nowhere. But when I started having to be on the road for weeks on end and playing the same records all the time, I actually got really into that. Because, you know, I would try different combinations of things and then I'd have a certain set of program material that I can, like, work from. And kind of like I was talking about earlier about limitation, that limitation ended up being really good in a way. So when we go home, we pull out a certain portion of the records to refresh, you know, but there's also a core set that stays now that corset might be disturbed on the next tour, you know, when we're packing again. But you know, typically, I might bring 20 new records for each tour, and the rest is already, you know, there from the last one. So it's more like a soup where you're kind of adding a little bit rather than always just building this new thing. And that way, you know, I can try different things. Some records, you know, you play them once, and there can be an issue with the engineering, or there can, or you just don't feel it sounds right or it doesn't translate, I often try to tell myself, I'm not just playing the music I like, I'm also playing the sound systems. Because sound systems are hard, like not everything kind of translates over a sound system. And because I want to build heat in the body, because I want people to dance, I am conscientious about how things sound. So things come in and out, you know, and during the tour, we'll buy new records and try them out as we go. And then when we get home, you know, we spend time like, VPI cleaning them and marking them and you know if it's a 45, writing 45 on it, and marking the track we're gonna play so we can find it fast so we don't lose time at the club.
0: Thank you.
2: Um I really appreciated the space you opened when you talked about hearing protection and sharing your vulnerability in that way because I think it's an important topic. What are the roadblocks you think that prevent us from having these more open conversations in the electronic
0: music scenes? And What are the conversations that need to be had so that we can take better care of ourselves in that way?
1: You know, it's interesting, the roadblocks. When I have talked about it online, I've been, there's a lot of emotion about it. Let's say I say, you know, parties are loud. I think we need to wear hearing protection. People say, well, just turn it down. The trouble is, there's this concept of the noise floor. Like this room's quiet, so we don't need the sound system to be loud. But if there's 2,000 people talking, That raises the noise floor so much that the simple truth is, for people to really feel the music, it's gotta be loud. One of the other things is people can feel a lot of shame around it, so a lot of DJs I know feel like they should be wearing hearing protection, but because of something wrong with them, they're not. I felt like this for a long time. I thought if I wore hearing protection, I'm not gonna be able to mix well, and definitely, As a DJ from Chicago, you gotta prove your worth. And if you can't do a good blend, you're gonna get some flack for that. So to me, pulling really tight mixes is like, it's what I'm trying to achieve personally. That's not to say that that's the only value or that's what everyone should do. That's what I'm trying to do. So I felt like a certain shame, like I'm not wearing hearing protection because I'm not gonna be good if I wear the hearing protection. And the other concern was that I'm not gonna feel the music as much. Because if you wear hearing protection, the kind of feeling can be, well, it's muffled, or it's not as direct, or I don't feel it as much in my body. And I would say that was true for my first gigs, wearing the higher hearing protection. It was weird, it felt weird. You know, it felt like there's all this energy around me and I'm in like this dampened kind of state. But then my sense ratios kind of adjusted. So anyway, so I think these are these are some of the roadblocks, I mean, even though I've gone through what I've gone through, and even though I think I'm a pretty tight DJ, people still challenge me on it all the time, I say, oh, I can't, I can't. They say, I can't, you know. And I, I'm gonna quote Rick Rubin here, he says, don't say you, you can't, so you haven't yet. And truly, like, everybody can teach themselves to mix with hearing protection, no one should feel bad because that's an intimidating thing to do. I really wish there would become a culture for people who are really seriously raving. And by that, I mean going to dance parties like all the time, right? And seriously dancing, like dancing in front of speakers. I did an Art of the DJ years ago, and I have one regret from it, and that's that I suggested to people, no, you really need a direct experience of music, because everyone at the time was wearing these like foam plugs. And I just thought, well, God, you need at some point to just feel that shit come through you, you know? But the truth is, the technology for hearing protection has become so good that you can get these custom plugs. Now, they're not going to be accessible to everyone because they are expensive, but it's the best money you'll ever spend if you can do it. What it is, it has a little filter in it. It's custom molded to your ear. It feels weird for the first few weeks you wear it. And the, the filter just brings everything down evenly, so it's not at all muffled. So you still get the high end. It's so wild once you get used to it. Now I like listening to music with them in, because when I'm in a loud environment, everything sounds much clearer to me now. And I'm not looking for that like trillness to kind of feel like energy. I definitely think there's like room for more people to talk about musician earplugs for dancers. So I would really like to see there be more conversations around that and maybe some moves where the festivals and other people who are really making a lot of money off of this music decide to invest in trying to help facilitate that sort of thing. Like if it's a three-day festival why not have someone there molding people's ears and then sending them the hearing protection the next week Um, and maybe that could be subsidized in some way you know to make it easier for people or some kind of sliding scale based on people's needs. I know in the UK for For musicians, as long as you can show your gigging regularly, you can get a subsidy, and it really makes it quite a bit more affordable to get, for example, the kinds of earplugs I use, which are called ACS. I hope that answers your question. There's more I could say, of course, but it's for the sake of time.
2: Hi, Iris. Hi. Thank thank you for sharing your story, first of all. It's uh, wonderful to hear. I'm really curious about your connection to the material culture, the vinyl itself. What's the turnaround of your crate, or the weight that you have limitation to carry? Where do you, you know, you're on the road quite a bit. Could you tell us a little bit more about your story of how you acquire your records and the meaning behind that?
1: Oh, okay. Well, there's definitely a a few parts to that question. So there's a few lanes I could go down. So I hope this answers your question, and thank you for it. I will say that every record in my bag I love. And this is how I can play records that I've had for 30 years and still play them. People say, how can you keep playing that? I load my stick the day before the set. I don't know, because I have a really strong personal connection to these records. I do notice, though, they need to come in and out. So I'll go through the bag when we get home, and I ask myself a simple question. Are you excited to play that record? Or... Are you kind of in a place where it's more like, you know that's a really great one, that it's gonna really activate the dance floor, but you're not yourself so excited to play it. Then it comes out. So that's how the record bag doesn't become just like a greatest hits bag. We're constantly buying records on the road and certain ones of them we'll try out at the sets, but other ones I wait till I get home because I really want to learn the record. I want to. Um, we both do a style of mixing call arrangement mixing, which is to say to really understand the counts and the records and so that things really line up in very particular ways. That takes some practice sometimes or or some just time listening to the record repeatedly. So a lot comes home with us and then gets, we call it processing the records, like we listen to them repeatedly, mix them, clean them, mark them. So through that process, usually by the time we're about to leave again, there's a little subset that's going to go in the bag. It is hard though, I mean I always want to bring more, although I I could pack another suitcase full of stuff, but I, I find that, that this amount I bring is, like, the right amount. Because too much becomes kind of overwhelming, too. I mean, we've talked about a lot about limitations. The amount of stuff I can bring turns into a limitation. A third of the records go into an away bag, a hard case bag, and get packed in the middle of my socks and underwear and other stuff. So that if the bag gets thrown, it's okay. And then I always have enough with me in my carry-on, so if I my bag gets lost, I can still play my set. And then the hardest-to-find acapella records are the rarest things that you can't even get on disc hogs and stuff. Those are always with me. Like, I don't put those in my carry-on luggage. I'd be devastated if I lost even the checked luggage, but it just seems like a way to kind of deal with the risk. So I hope that answers some of your questions. Okay, cool. Can take one more. Okay. Yeah.
2: Hi. Hi. Thank you for spending time with us. Question is about what you look forward to, like a new challenge in your musical practice as either a solo or as a duo. Um, you talked about the live things. I was wondering if there's any things you look forward to or challenges you want to put, give yourself for musically or in performance.
1: Oh, like, like specific things that I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, when I play with my partner, One of the challenges is to really um, surprise her sometimes. (laughs) You know, one of the things is just unique combinations. I'm always kind of reshuffling the deck, so to speak. So I may one night do a mix that's absolutely like stellar. I'm like, that sounded great. I should do it again. And then maybe the next night I do the same mix because it's sort of like a signature or something, right? But that starts to lose its energy after a while because so much of... DJing for me is like really just engaging with these records in real time and trying different things. So I'm just, you know, constantly then I'm like, well, to keep this record alive for me, I wanna try blending it with something else. or I wanna try, you know, doing the cut at a different point or I wanna try, one thing we do a lot is we'll finish the mix with the record instead of pulling the next record. We orchestrate with the record we just played to find, so I'd love to find something that I've, inter- like let's say I've listened to the record 100 times, but I'll find that little moment that I can then use to like scratch in or like collage in, and that always feels un- kind of uncanny and magical to me. So part of it is just having some new music and being excited about that new music, and part of it is trying to draw these things out of the records I already have that I didn't even know were there. And having a partner there to do with can spur me on a bit because she knows the music as well as I do, you know. And so when she gets excited, it's not like I'm not a resident of a club and play there every weekend. So the people in front of me don't always have that same kind of lyrical vernacular sense of what I'm doing. Like they're not expecting that, you know what I mean? Like in the Disco Days, for example, um, there might be a blend that's always done that night. It's a signature mix or something. So... But her being there with me, it's like there's a continuity there. So definitely that's one way that kind of keeps it engaging. I do want to say one other thing, I guess, because we've talked a lot about the past. Is I play a lot of new music on vinyl, and I don't just look for music that sounds like old music. So I actually play quite a bit of bass music and like UKG and like a lot of stuff that you wouldn't, that sounds different than, it, than the music that, that it grew out of from the 90s. And I love taking records that people know from the past, combining it with a rhythm structure that might be more contemporary, and in the sense, like, again, not playing the greatest hits, all of a sudden that older record, it's like, you, you've never heard it before. One of the highest compliments I ever get from people is they'll say, what was that edit you played? And I'll be like, it wasn't an edit. You know, Oz has taken the old, you know, the happy clappers and mixing it with some holding hands record, mm-hmm. you know. And all of a sudden, a record that was like a handbag record sounds like a modern bass record, or at least for three or four minutes of the blend.
2: I am informed that we are done. Okay. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so wow, much. So thank you. And thank you all so much. We appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange with Eris Drew. Many thanks to Andrew Rice for moderating, to Mutech for facilitating the conversation, and to Eris for her time and thoughts. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Sensation from Drew's 2021 EP, Quivering in Time, out on t for t Love Energy. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at RA.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.